And so what I really wanted to do in this paper and say, okay, by Kumlingu, we mean this. By industrial policy, we mean that. Here's how it's operationalized. Here are the criteria by which we judge whether it succeeds or it fails. And hopefully by concretizing a lot of these things, we can actually make some progress on the debates that need to happen. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this episode of Act in Line, Dylan Pommen, the editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton, speaks with Alexander Salter. Salter is the author of a recent article, Free Enterprise and the Common Good, published at the Heritage Foundation. The article has generated a lot of buzz, particularly online, where Salter's ideas have been the subject of much debate. Before delving into specific questions about the article and its reception, they start with some definitions to clear the air. What is common good capitalism? What is the common good? And what is the difference between the, quote, science of economics and the art of political economy? They then explore how the author's article has been perceived within the context of the Heritage Foundation's recent changes, as well as how their ideas diverge from those of other national conservative economic proposals. They also discuss the influence of Roman Catholic social thought on the author's ideas and the ways in which the Swiss-German ordo-liberal economist Wilhelm Rupke has shaped their thinking. Finally, they take a look at the concept of industrial policy and how it fits into the author's vision of common good capitalism. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello and welcome to Acton Line. My name is Dylan Pommen. I'm a research fellow here at the Acton Institute and executive editor of our journal Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by Alexander William Salter, the George G. Snyder Associate Professor of Economics in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University, um, as well as many, many other things, including author of the forthcoming book, The Political Economy of Distributism, Property, Liberty, and the Common Good. Uh, I should also say, uh, for the sake of transparency, um, you are on the editorial board of the journal Markets Morality, and you are a sometime co-author with myself of uh, several uh, online op-eds, actually in, in print as well. So, um, Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, and so this conversation, we, we wanted to have you on uh, because your recent article at Heritage um, titled Free Enterprise and the Common Good. Uh, it's generated a lot of buzz online, uh, as is usual. Uh, seems to be mostly among people who didn't bother to read past the headline. Um, but uh, before we get into some specific questions about that article and you know the various response to it, uh, I'd like to start with some some definitions to clear the air. So let's just start with uh, I'll kind of go one at a time, and you can you can give me you know what do you mean by these terms? So first of all, what is common good capitalism? Common good capitalism is an effort by some on the right to try and reorient free enterprise towards what they perceive to be the common good. 
where common good is here understood the good of some authentic human community all the way from the family, the local community, all the way up to the state in terms of the things that that community needs to flourish as a community. This idea that those goods are not necessarily reducible to the subjective well-being of the individual members. Families need things substantively to thrive qua families. Nations need things to thrive qua nations. And so the argument goes that free enterprise, if left to itself, will not fully advance these goods. And so enlightened public policy, guided by conservative values, needs to reorient markets towards promoting those goods that otherwise would be neglected. That's the claim made by advocates of common good capitalism. I don't think that they're enemies of markets. They're certainly not enemies of private property, but they are much more comfortable with a directing hand of the state in economic and political affairs than, for example, I am. Okay, and you already mentioned it um, as far as uh, what is the common good, uh, but you also mentioned in your uh, article, in your essay, uh, that this tends to be grounded, at least among some advocates, in you know Roman Catholic social thought. So you know, how does that factor in uh, to their understanding of the common good? What's, what's kind of the, maybe the deeper uh, resources that they're drawing from? Sure. They're coming from the intellectual uh, tradition of the Catholic Church, as he pointed out, uh, especially the social encyclicals that started in the late 19th century as the Church really confronted the problems of economic modernity, the transition from largely agricultural labor to industrial labor in in towns, the move away from the countryside. All of these things resulted in larger standards of living, but they also resulted in phenomena that were not familiar to many people yet in human history, such as mass unemployment. When you have 90% of your population engaged in agricultural production, unemployment, at least on a massive scale, is not really a thing. So as we move towards wage labor, labor that becomes a new, a new social phenomenon that needs to be dealt with. So starting in the late 19th century, a series of papal encyclicals addressed topics such as the proper relationship between labor and capital, uh, the rights that each party has in economic transactions, the place of economic justice in the common good, the importance of subsidiarity, the rejection of both com- complete laissez-faire capitalism and socialism. These are topics that are conducive to the understanding of the common good that I think largely, though not solely, makes up this conversation. You do find other traditions here as well, beyond the Roman Catholic tradition. You find uh, sometimes reform thought, especially the thought of Abraham Kuyper, you sometimes find uh, Jewish sources and you even find secular sources that have this notion that, yes, there is such a thing as an authentic human community. Yes, it is not reducible merely to its individual members. And those communities need some good or goods to flourish qua community. And that tends to be the focus of the analysis. Okay. And then uh, lastly, as far as definitions go, although I'm sure I'll add more as we go along, but uh, uh, you one thing you do in this article that I appreciate um, is you distinguish between the science of economics and the art of political economy. So I guess maybe let's define those separately and then how do they relate to one another? Absolutely. This is something that's really been intriguing me in recent years, something that I thought a lot about and written a lot about. And the distinction actually comes from John Neville Keynes, uh, the father of John Maynard Keynes, the more famous of the two Keynesian economists. And so Keynes' father, John Neville, distinguished between the science of economics and the art of political economy. And I would put the distinction this way. The science of economics is basically hard-nosed rational choice analysis. Markets, prices, supply and demand, basically the mechanics of how exchange works. The art of political economy, though, is much broader. 
It has an ethical dimension. It has a prescriptive dimension. It needs good economics to be done well, but it is not reducible to good economics. Because ultimately, political economy is the study of what makes for a good society. And these basic questions of social organization and social order that we've been having since Socrates are not going to go away simply because we have a pretty good model of how markets work. Just because economists understand markets in terms of their models of supply and demand, price-taking firms, price-searching firms, all that good stuff that I really like and think is important. That does not obviate the broader ethical discussion about how we should basically organize society's commercial and political institutions. You need to know economics in order to have that broader conversation. And in fact, I would even say that scientific economics is necessary to have that broader conversation responsibly, but it is not sufficient. You're necessarily going to have more humanistic concerns when engaging in the latter than the former. So I, I use the distinction as well. I tend to associate it with Lionel Robbins, but yeah, uh, Neville Keynes is definitely earlier. Um, so I want to get to your article, and I'm going to start, I guess, from a little bit more of a meta uh, angle, but it's related to the buzz, and then we'll get to some specifics. Um, so much of the buzz around your article followed on the news, uh, followed on news, um, such as uh, a recent piece at the Dispatch from uh, Audrey Falberg and uh, Charlotte Lawson, it was late last year, I believe. Uh, the heritage uh, has not simply changed a little with shifts in the Republican Party and the conservative movement more broadly, but as part of heritage action's one voice policy. This has come through through uh, a lot of inner turmoil. So according to them, 51 employees have departed the Heritage Foundation and 73 new employees have joined since January 1, 2022, uh, which a heritage spokesman, spokesman actually confirmed. Um, Former scholars there have recounted directives to self-censor, including to the point of deleting tweets critical of the former president, up to and including the rights on January 6, 2021, um, and as well as statements in favor of foreign aid to Ukraine, for example. Um, and that light, your article, or again, you know, probably just the headline or the poll quote they use for it on social media, uh, has been perceived as a, another slide by heritage, once a bastion of Reagan-era fusionist conservatism, into a more nationalistic posture, ultimately repudiating their historic support for free market economics. So where does or doesn't your article fit into this? Is that what it is? Is it a call to rethink the effectiveness and desirability of economic freedom? Well, since I'm still very much an advocate of classically liberal economic freedom, I certainly hope that that's not what it is. <laughs> what I wanted to do that paper is clarify the terms of the debate that are happening right now on the American right. It's no secret that there are massive political and social realignments happening within U.S. conservatism. And I think as a result of those, those realignments, we're having many new and interesting conversations, but there's also a lot of turf guarding. And I think in many ways, the kind of older classically liberal conservative and the new nationalist conservative, both parties are talking past each other to a large degree when they're having these debates about industrial policy, about the common good. And so what I really wanted to do in this paper and say, okay, by common good, we mean this. By industrial policy, we mean that. Here's how it's operationalized. Here are the criteria by which we judge whether it succeeds or it fails. And hopefully by concretizing a lot of these things, we can actually make some progress on the debates that need to happen in order for U.S. conservatism to actually have a future. It's not okay for a philosophy to be dead and stagnant. It doesn't necessarily need to change its core tenets, but it should speak to the times. And the times are changing. 
And so regardless of what the fundamental character of American conservatism is, I for one hope it stays classically liberal, we do need to take on these new challenges straight up. We can't hide from them and we can't keep on repeating the exact same arguments that were 50 years ago that might not be relevant to today's circumstances. So encouraging people to focus on what are we actually disagreeing about? What is the object of disagreement? What measure would you look at? What piece of data, what argument can convince you that policy X or industrial policy Y works or doesn't work? Hopefully moving towards a little more of a direction where we can actually make some progress on these issues rather than just continuing to wave our well-worn books at each other. Okay, so in that light, uh, how does your article diverge from the, the general national conservative economic proposals of people like Oren Cass or Yoram Hazoni? In the paper, I do say, uh, I do analyze industrial policy proposals. That tends to be the microcosm for a lot of these discussions. And so I think it's useful to hone in on it and really dig into it. Uh, contrary to a lot of classically, classically liberal conservatives who sometimes argue that any kind of an industrial policy is impossible because of the knowledge problem first identified by F.I. Hayek, I don't think that that's actually true. If you look at what guys like Cass are saying, what they're, all they're saying is we want public policy to increase manufacturing output and increase manufacturing employment. And presumably they have some trade-off in mind about the amount of foregone wealth elsewhere in the economy they'd be willing to give up to get it. Uh, I, for one, would be much happier if they would actually tell me what that is. But nonetheless, they probably have that in view. And if that's your goal, if that's what industrial policy is, you want more auto workers and more steel output, absolutely public policy can do that. Every time we go into an Econ 101 classroom and teach our students how a subsidy works, we do exactly that. So you can't have it both ways. You can't teach how taxes and subsidies work in terms of their predictable effects in terms of consumer prices and output volumes, while also saying, oh, any and all public policy here is impossible because of the knowledge problem. It just doesn't fly. At the same time, I think that the industrial policy advocates are much, much, much too optimistic about evading the so-called public choice problems with industrial policy. Politicians, bureaucrats, judges, corporate leaders, these are all self-interested actors who are all going to want to turn any policy initiative to their private interest. We can't wish that away. You can't wave your hands and say, we want good statesmanship. Good statesmanship will fix it. That doesn't eliminate the basic incentive problems here. So if you're going to propose a federally, a federal government-guided transformation of American industry from the top down, it's also incumbent upon you to tell us how you're going to resist the inevitable corruptive tendencies of that for the various parties who have an interest in those bargains to not divert the public policy to their private interests. So again, that's one instance where I think on the one hand, the classical liberals have overpaid, overplayed their hand, uh, but also the new national conservatives have not begun to address some of the most important arguments. They'll say they have. They'll say things like, well, all public policy problems have public choice uh, issues with them. And so we shouldn't allow that to frustrate us in this case. Well, actually, that means that you need to tell us how you're going to get around them. Any good policy proposal needs to answer the question, how are we going to implement this policy in a world with self-interested actors? Statesmanship is not an answer. You got to have something more robust than that. Okay. And just for, for listeners who might not know, what do you mean by the, the knowledge problem? Yeah. So this is a fascinating topic that I like getting into. F.A. Hayek was one of the major participants in debates in the early to mid 20th century about the basic desirability of capitalism or socialism as a form of economic organization. And it may surprise some of your listeners to know that a great fraction of the economics profession, probably more than half at one point, actually thought that socialism could beat capitalism at its own game. 
it wasn't about producing a more fair distribution of income. It was just about being more efficient, producing more goods and services. So first, Ludwig von Mises came along with his argument centered in property rights, uh, profits and losses, and market prices, showing that if you actually had true socialism and abolished private property, that would basically mean that any and all economic planning is throwing darts at a board in the dark, blindfolded. You were never going to be able to hit your target. You're never going to be able to do anything with it. So based on that, Hayek then took that argument and said, a lot of economists think that the sophistication in our models, right? We have all these nice models and economics that tells us the condition for economic efficiency. And many economists thought that they could actually look at those models and use them to plan the economy. It doesn't work that way because you're assuming that you have all the relevant knowledge at hand accessible to the planning organization when in fact that knowledge is necessarily scattered and distributed throughout society. So the problem is not one of optimal model solutions. The economic problem is really figuring out how we can all make use of each other's brains and skills to facilitate economy-wide coordination of production and consumption. And Hayek's answer for how that problem was solved is the price system. Relative prices are both pieces of information and surrogates for information that guide the production process. It doesn't matter that nobody knows how to make a computer start to finish. It doesn't matter that nobody knows how to make a number two pencil start to finish. Prices guide that process by allowing us to borrow each other's brains. The only economic system under which it would matter for somebody to know how to build a computer start to finish, no division of labor, is socialism. Because you're destroying the knowledge process that generates all that stuff that helps economic coordination happen. It's really a completion and a fulfillment of the earlier Ludwig von Mises arguments that I think is uh, it's a really important argument that not enough people even today appreciate. Now, I bring that argument up because a lot of especially libertarians tend to use the knowledge problem as a kind of I win button against any and all interventions of public policy that they don't like. You can't have a welfare state because of the knowledge problem. You can't have industrial policy because of the knowledge problem. Well, Hayek came up with the knowledge problem, so I'm pretty sure he knows when it applies and when it doesn't. If you go and read his 1960 book, The Constitution of Liberty, which is widely viewed by people who haven't read it as a hardline libertarian tract, he has a massive role for government in the Constitution of Liberty. Everything from regulating work hours to planning the money supply by a government agency to uh, safety standards to a guaranteed basic income. There's apparently no knowledge problem with these things. I think that Hayek, who came up with the knowledge problem, would understand which policies are subject to the knowledge problem. They may or may not be good ideas. I often think not. But the reason they are not practical is not because they are impossible because of the knowledge problem. That pertains to broad-based economic planning and related things like trying to centrally plan a particular market. But I don't think it applies to industrial policy or related policies in this case. Okay. Now, to swing back to uh, one thing I already uh, touched on, the phrase common good capitalism, I might be mistaken, but I think it might actually come from Florida Senator Marco Rubio, uh, who explicitly appealed to Catholic social thought in, in kind of making this proposal. Um, so I'm, I'm curious in, in your reading on this and in, from your perspective, um, you know, doesn't Roman Catholic social thought explicitly refute the idea that popes and magisterium are actually making policy recommendations? Uh, what does it mean for a policy agenda to be informed by Roman Catholic or any other religious social ethic? How are people supposed to make the connection from objective moral principles to prudential political economy? Great question. I'm not sure whether Senator Rubio is the first person to use the term common good capitalism, but he did popularize it for sure. 
when he gave his address at the Bush School of Business at Catholic University of America. And I think it was the fall of 2019. So he's definitely one of the leading public voices for this. And that ties into the next part of your question, which is how do we do this? What's the bridge between Catholic social teaching and actual policy? And that's not always an easy question to answer because you're right. If you read these documents, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the social encyclicals, aside from condemning 100% libertarianism, laissez-faire, and outright socialism, the church explicitly says there is a wide range of legitimate political economic models that a society can pick. And so that necessarily means that there's going to be a wide range of public policies that society can legitimately embrace. So I think that what we have to do is first figure out what the principles that we accept are, and then understand how do we apply those principles to particular cases. For example, if we're considering the relationship between capital and labor, on the one hand, we know that as a matter of justice, labor is entitled to a wage that is is in accordance with human dignity. That's definitely from Catholic social teaching. On the other hand, if the level of wages that makes that happen in most people's minds make this industry completely economically inviable such that nobody produces and nobody has a job, well, that's, that's a problem too. So there's going to necessarily be a lot of prudential judgments in navigating these trade-offs. I don't think it's going to be a measure of generating one-size-fits-all, all-comers policy solutions. We're going to necessarily have to pick and choose. We're probably going to be replacing bad policies that we have now with less bad policies. And I'm actually a big fan of making marginal reforms. In my own private politics, I'm still fiercely libertarian, but I'm also very comfortable with, in the real world of politics, substituting less bad policies for really bad policies, making things better at the margin. I'm very much a, a Burkean in that sense. In the course of your article, you recommend uh, that national conservatives should read more of the Swiss-German ordo-liberal economist Wilhelm Rupke. Uh, it's no secret that we're fans of Rupke here at Acton. Uh, my colleague Dan Huger even edited a fine collection of his works that we published. Um, he, has, he was a winsome advocate for free markets, human flourishing, and Christian liberalism. Uh, but in particular, you focus on his worries over mass man, or what he called uh, proletarianization, uh, and his call for greater property ownership as a countermeasure to secure individual freedom. Uh, while I'm sympathetic to worries over, you know, say, mob mentality and direct democracy, that leads me to different conclusions than him in this case. Uh, Rupka was worried about overpopulation, a, a worry I would contend that did not pan out since his time, uh, as we literally now have billions more people along with increased prosperity and decreased extreme poverty worldwide. But it led him to a, a sort of quasi-Jeffersonian belief that if everyone could just live as they do in Switzerland on small estates where people can grow their own food, then the problem would be solved. Uh, now, you've adapted his thought for a somewhat different proposal, uh, writing a proposal in the spirit of Rupka, tailored to current conditions, would focus on promoting small business ownership rather than industrial conglomerates with salaried employees. The goal is many smaller enterprises, especially in agriculture and manufacturing. Independent proprietors make for independent citizens. Supporting them means cultivating a social class with a meaningful stake in the maintenance of ordered liberty. So instead of a small farm, should everyone have a small business? And does this imply, then, that there is something inherently problematic about big business? To be clear, I'm a fan of small business. My, my wife, Kelly, even owns one. Uh, but don't most small business owners want their businesses to grow into at least bigger businesses? 
And aren't there problems of scale that big business is simply better suited to overcome than dozens of smaller businesses? I'm thinking of Tyler Cohen, for example, has a whole book uh, on that. Uh, what should people make of this proposal? And does it maybe still retain too much of Rupka's Swiss idealism? I'm not sure that Rupka is quite that simple, but I certainly appreciate the spirit in which the comment is made because there is a degree of romanticism to all this, as he freely admits. If you read his books, he explicitly says, oftentimes people accuse me of romanticism. If believing in the good society makes me a romantic, so be it. So I really admire his willingness to, to state what he believes in and bite the bullet. The reason that I put forth Repka as an exemplar isn't necessarily because I want to take his policy agenda and hand it to the United States Congress and say, go for it, guys. I really think, though, that the way he combines scientific economics with artful political economy is the right synthesis that we should be looking for because he actually is very good at both. He was trained as an economist. He was one of the architects of the post-war German economic miracle. If you read his price theory textbook, right, his Econ 101 textbook, it's clear he understands very well basic economics, and he's not willing to tolerate any nonsense about how markets do work or don't work. In contrast to uh, some of the distributist thinkers that he draws upon, guys like Chesterton and Belloc, who often don't understand how markets work. So Repka has no tolerance for that and definitely wants people to understand the basics of property rights, the price system, supply and demand, all that good stuff. But he's also not afraid to be a little more imaginative in his basic proposals for social reform. So I think that that's the spirit that we ultimately need to retain. I freely concede that big business is often economically beneficial and benign. But I also think that if we untangle the spirit of what Repka is saying, we have to take seriously the idea that a society without owners without people who have a degree of economic independence, their incentives as citizens, as members of a republic, as members of a community to act publicly are probably going to be quite different than somebody who is rooted with their own business concerns, with something they received as patrimony from their fathers to pass down to their sons. I think that we need to actually consider the possibility that not necessarily all forms of labor make equally good practices of citizenship. And I don't have a good answer for what to do about that. I think that it's a fascinating problem that's going to require some good public policy solutions. And maybe the least bad thing that we can do is simply repeal the host of web of regulations and tax policies that artificially select for large businesses. It's no secret to any economist right now that the regulatory code selects for large businesses over small, that the tax code selects for large businesses over small, because complying with these arcane rules often takes the form of a fixed cost. You want to do any business, you have to comply with XYZ rules. And larger already established firms are going to be the ones that are more capable of spreading those regulatory and tax costs onto a wider range of output. So that's one way in which, uh, in which the deck is stacked against the kind of enterprises that Repka and the distributists favored. Does that necessarily mean that for every dollar we spend on corporate welfare, should we should replace that with a small business subsidy? No, I don't think so. Does that mean that if we have to have something, we should seriously think about trading corporate welfare dollars for small business subsidies at the margin? I'm intrigued. I'd be willing to consider that. But again, if we're going to have that policy conversation, we need to talk about the informational aspect, the hacking aspects. Does it clear that hurdle? And the incentive aspects. Can we actually design and implement this policy in a way so it's not completely captured by special interests? These are not secondary conversations. These are the heart of what responsible political economy looks like. And to the extent that either side of the conservative debate, the classical liberals and the national conservatives are assuming only half of it, my message to them is stop, do all the work. 
So you may have already answered my second curveball here, but uh, uh, in another recent article at the American Conservative, uh, you referenced James Buchanan, uh, another Nobel laureate uh, like Hayek. Um, weren't he and other public choice theorists, by contrast to Rupka, or at least your your Rupkian proposal, uh, advocate just more a more constitutional solution? So. You know, what matters is not the distribution of ownership per se, but whether the rules of the game in any given society do more to incentivize self-serving policy on the part of politicians or to guard against it. Um, you know, where where do we put our priorities? Is it a matter like I'm I'm very much in your camp in terms of uh, I'm a gradualist. Uh, I have ideals, but we live in a world in which you got to hope for things to get just a little less bad for the most part. That's how our politics work. That's how our society works. And that's realistic in, in a world less politicized uh, than we currently live in. It used to be uh, an impetus and incentive for the art of compromise, which is what politics is supposed to be. Um, but that said, how do we prioritize things? Because I could see it very easily sliding into, you know, kind of the, the Oran Cass natural conservatism sort of statement that, well, you know, there's public choice issues with everything. And really what we're trying to do is just give subsidies to the little guy instead of the big guy. Um, how, how do we prioritize these things? What, what role, when do we like put our foot down and say, no, we got to actually change the rules of the game. And how do we go about doing that uh, in this real world that is so complicated and often only require or allows for marginal improvement? If I knew how to do that, I might be a politician instead of an economics professor. I'm totally sympathetic with the Buchanan approach to these things. I cut my teeth on Jim Buchanan in graduate school. He remains one of my favorite economists. And I think the constitutional political economy is massively underrated by the mainstream of the economics profession. I definitely buy the idea of getting the rules for rules making right and how that matters in terms of channeling private interest into public outcomes that either benefit everybody or impose costs on everybody. So if you ask me what I think of a balanced budget amendment and those sorts of policy proposals that were popular in the 1980s, I say, yes, let's do it. Remember, I'm also the guy that wrote all those National Review articles defending zombie Reaganism and insisting <laughs> Reaganism is not dead. So you, you kind of know where I'm coming from here. At the same time, I think that especially given how polarized things are right now, getting everybody to voluntarily put down the gun, so to speak, is going to be a very hard sell. I don't for the life of me, I can't see why that is. You would think that people would understand that we're all trapped in a game of thermonuclear war, right? Like the famous movie, uh, War Games, the only winning move is not to play. And so this is one of the most appealing things to me about libertarianism, something that I still identify as, the, this idea of libertarianism by choosing not to do certain things governmentally. We are lowering the stakes of politics. If the government can't do that much, it doesn't matter if your enemies are in charge for 48 years. It's okay. Life will go on. You'll get them next time. Basically, what we need is a politics of live and let live, but we can only have that if people choose not to go to the mattresses and choose not to escalate this political war of all against all that we seem to have caught ourselves in. So are there constitutional solutions to that? Yeah, I absolutely think there are. Are they going to pass popular muster right now? I don't see how. Given the difficulties of amending the United States Constitution, and make no mistake, it should not be easier. It's supposed to be hard. These are the basic rules of the political game. It should not be anywhere near as easy to amend the Constitution as to pass basic legislation. But given how divided we are, and given that each party thinks that it has key stakes in being able to seize power and use it to reward their friends and punish their enemies, I unfortunately don't have much hope for a ordinary constitutional lowering of the temperature. 
I would love it if I were wrong, but I'm not optimistic about it. All right. So we've already talked a little bit about industrial policy, but I do want to get a little more into the details. Um, so you write, uh, the goal should not be replacing, for example, well, you already mentioned this, existing direct welfare transfer payments uh, with new corporate welfare, targeted subsidies and taxes. One federal cash flow is just as precarious as another. Uh, yet I could understand if readers still might be a bit unclear as to where you come down on the issue. You offer a handy list of five questions any common good capitalist policy agenda should answer. But do you still, under those conditions, promote some sort of industrial policy? Uh, for example, you write, society should see positive effects on manufacturing employment, manufacturing wages, migration patterns, property ownership, and civic engagement. Crucially, it would be necessary in some way to compare outcomes when some of the measures improve, manufacturing employment and wages, and others worsen, politicization of capital markets, lobbying costs, and so on. Uh, this is a matter of weighing and not merely counting. So this is what I'm trying to to get at, I guess. Is the goal still some sort of policy that promotes manufacturing employment and wages? Isn't that more of a 20th century view of the American economy? You know, for one thing, despite rumors to the contrary, we actually do still have a thriving domestic manufacturing sector sector. But secondly, since the 1980s, at least, we've seen the monumental rise of Silicon Valley, where often the products being manufactured, our software programmed on a computer rather than, say, car parts molded in a factory. Doesn't, doesn't any industrial policy run into this problem? So this isn't quite the knowledge problem, I don't think. It's <laughs> something a little different. Um, even properly weighing its benefits isn't the more important factor for a thriving economy. The unknowable future, so it's knowledge but not the same knowledge problem. The unknowable future creative destruction that even the best industrial policy might divert talent and resources away from rather than facilitating. Uh, isn't that a cost that would outweigh any benefits? My view is likely. Again, I'm not actually an advocate of industrial policy, with the exception of the national security concern in terms of matters with China. Uh, that's a separate conversation, though. There, my concern is not, I'm not looking to repatriate semiconductors just because I want semiconductors. My goal there is simply to promote what's called uh, detanglement and divestment from China simply because I, th I think that it will lessen the likelihood of a war. If I'm wrong about that, if I became convinced that that's not a correct chain of reasoning, I would abandon that at a heartbeat. But my sole goal with industrial policy that I'm willing to accept is lowering the chances of a hot war with China. But that one exception aside, yeah, I agree. I don't think the thing that American political economy needs right now is a widespread increase in manufacturing sector employment. It is important that the advocates of industrial policy never point out that even though manufacturing employment has fallen, manufacturing output is up, up, up. It has nothing to do with, well, it has no more than 20% to do with outsourcing and outshoring to China. If you look at the studies on this, most of it comes from capital improvements and improvements in technologies. Even if you, yeah, even if you saved every job that went to China, you would still have four quote unquote jobs lost simply because we invented labor saving technology. That's how it works. Now, if you want to say that we haven't done a good enough job at facilitating retraining, uh, that the current welfare packages and transfer payments at the federal and state levels simply encourages dependency instead of productivity, and there should be better ways of doing that, I'm sympathetic to that. The reformicons about 10 years ago were saying the exact same thing, and everybody was very mean to them. But now all of a sudden, it's suddenly okay to talk about these things. So no, I am not actually an advocate of industrial policy in terms of it's not my goal to raise manufacturing wages and employment because I don't think that stacking the deck of American political economy in that direction is conducive to the common good. 
But to the extent that there's going to be a public demand for something like industrial policy, and to the extent that it becomes politically incentive compatible, and if it's going to happen, I think that there are better, worse, better and worse ways of doing it. And we can use the tools of economics to make it less bad than it otherwise would be. I'm not opposed to participating in that conversation. I know a lot of economists that would say that I don't want to touch this with a 10 and a half foot pole. It's wrong. And I respect that. But like you said, making things less bad in the realm of practical politics is my primary concern right now. Because what I want to help the American right do is discover a new durable coalition so we can advance on the one hand, a virtuous society and a free society. And if that means holding my nose with respect to some policy that I don't think that we should have, I'm okay with that. Okay. So in light of the foregoing, I think we can finally address the social media tagline uh, that got everyone excited and or distressed about your article. Uh, it was this. Uh, the question isn't whether to jettison free enterprise in favor of the common good, but rather how to reorient free enterprise in support of the common good. Now, maybe you didn't even write that, uh, as is often the case with taglines. Nope, that one was mine. Okay. Uh, that one was mine. All right. So we'll, well, we've clarified that then. Uh, does this presume that free enterprise does not serve the common good on its own? Uh, or put another way, why must free enterprise be reoriented rather than some conservative's conception of the common good? Is the former malleable, but not the latter? That way of phrasing the question does stack the deck. You're right. It does presume that free enterprise on its own is not conducive to the common good. And I'm perfectly okay with writing that sentence because look in where in the paper I put it. I was summarizing the view of the national conservatives. By definition, they don't think that free enterprise by itself is conducive to the common good. As a classical liberal and fan of markets, I'm much more optimistic about the coherence between unregulated free markets and the common good. But I want to have a productive conversation with people who are not, which means that I need to take them as they are and at least be minimally charitable to their beliefs. Let me put it this way. Many, if not most of your listeners will be familiar with the economist Thomas Sowell. Sowell cut his teeth as an historian of Marxism. He was an historian of Marxist economic thought. For a large part of his career, he had to write persuasively and charitably about Marxism. Does anybody think that Thomas Sowell is a Marxist? The very claim is absurd, but if you want to talk to people and if you want to understand their ideas on their own terms, you have to be able to, as Brian Kaplan says, pass the ideological Turing test. So the fact that so many people who are quote unquote on my side are mad about that is actually very reassuring to me. It means I've passed the Turing test. <laughs> I think I've gone over to the other side. I haven't. All I'm trying to do is describe views, many of which with, I, uh, with which I disagree, in a way that is charitable so we can actually get together and say, here's what you want to see in the policy space. Here's what I want to see in the policy space. How can we work this out so that this is least bad for both of us? Like Jim Buchanan, I treat politics as exchange, as give and take. And so that means you have to meet people where they are in the policy process. I don't think that that necessarily means that I'm turning my back on classical liberalism. I still consider myself every bit the classical liberal, conservative liber uh, liberal, quasi-fusionist as I ever did. <laughs> All right. So uh, lastly, unless I think of anything else, which I might, um, this recent article uh, is actually adapted from your forthcoming book. Uh, once again, that's The Political Economy of Distributism, which is published by, uh, will be published by uh, Catholic University of, Press, of America Press. Um, and we're also looking forward to welcoming you here at Acton to discuss your book with Dr. Daryl Alquist on July 13 as part of our Acton lecture series. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, so I'm I'm curious as to how you see distributism marketed by many advocates in the last few years, at least, as a Roman Catholic 
third way between capitalism and socialism as factoring into the contemporary conversation over American conservatives rethinking economic liberty today, whether they be national conservatives, integralists, common good capitalists, or Pat Buchanan, Donald Trump-style populists. Do you see them all as various types of distributists? Are you recommending distributism to them? Are you now or have you ever been a distributist yourself? I'm sitting before the Acton uh, Acton on American right. uh, Activities <laughs> Committee, right? So, in the book, I advance two claims. One is a minor claim, and one is a major claim. The minor claim is if you read the classical distributists, by which I mean Hilaire Belloc and G.K. Chesterton, they simply weren't very good economists. They make basic mistakes about how markets work. And when I say mistakes about how markets work, I don't mean compared to how right-wing economists think that markets work. I mean compared to the consensus of Econ 101 teachers, right? Like the basic things that we pretty much all agree on. There's this myth that economists disagree about everything. Maybe in macro we do, right? But in terms of the stuff that we teach in 101, that's, that's pretty secure at this point. If we can't be sure of that, we're in trouble. So I don't think that in many ways, Bellock and Chesterton adequately understand the market mechanism prices, all these things, but their broader political economic vision nonetheless remains interesting and valuable and can and should inform current debates because they offer a perspective that shows, among other things, a reason why you need to have political freedom to have economic freedom, but also a degree of economic freedom to achieve political freedom. When we talk about institutions and economics, we usually assume the direction of causality goes one way. First, get political freedom, right? The rule of law, all that good stuff. And then you can have free markets. Chesterton and Belloc and later Repke, who takes the good stuff that they have, well, I think leaving out a lot of the bad stuff, makes this point that you actually need a degree of positive, substantive, independence-oriented economic freedom, not just freedom from, but freedom to, in order to have small D democratic, small R Republican social orders that are not captured by large bureaucratic organizations, whether corporate or governmental. And so this idea is if you actually care about a free society, yeah, you actually do have to take, as you adequately called it earlier, a sort of Jeffersonian perspective on all this. So I think that that perspective is worth taking seriously. I don't think that it necessarily means that we have to break up Amazon and give all the shares to to the little guy. That's not what I'm calling for. But we classical liberals and conservatives have been wondering ever since the New Deal, why can't we just sort of get over the hurdle on this? What's holding us back? Why can't we actually get back to an actual democratic republic? Here's a new explanation that might suggest a neglected channel in the sociopolitical process that we haven't paid enough attention to. What we do about that, I hope to find that out in the next couple of years as I have good conversations with many people. That's excellent answer. All right, so I did think of another question. <laughs> I like questions because I, I I like that I like that answer. Um, so in, in some of my own research, although it's, it was a few years ago now, uh, I did a little work comparing um, indices of liberty, so religious liberty to economic liberty to press freedom to freedom of speech to democracy or you know political freedom. Uh, and the thing I found was that political freedom is actually the rarest, the true democracy, at least uh, measured by these indices. And maybe who knows how well, you know, there could be flaws with these measures. But for the most part, these are pretty well-respected ones that I was using. Um, and what I found is that the the more common one, um, or most common, I suppose, of those was religious liberty. And I think, and if, if, if a, a nation happened to have a high democracy score, political freedom score, it tended to have all of the other freedoms. 
as well. Um, so if you have a good full democracy rating, uh, you tend to be pretty religiously liberal, economically liberal, you have good press freedom, that sort of thing. Um, but the reverse is not necessarily true. And I, I wonder, I don't have any proof of this, but I wonder if people looked at that and drew the exact wrong conclusion, thinking, well, if we just give people political freedom, then all these other freedoms will follow. Because if you have this full democracy, then you have all these other things. And I think the lesson there is actually the reverse, that if you want political freedom, it has to be built upon the foundation of especially religious liberty. And then secondarily, I would say press freedom and economic freedom. Um, I think that accords with our history. Right. The the United States, uh, we had like the Zanger trial uh, as far as press freedom goes. We were founded for the sake of religious liberty, although that was pretty varied across states uh, and colonies at the time. Um, and we had a tradition of political liberty. Um, you know, they had their own congresses, their own constitutions. But it was something that they, they kind of already had. They had these building blocks and they were defending. Um, so maybe... What I would add is you say, you know, the economic liberty is important for political liberty and, and vice versa. And I do think there is a vice versa. They, of course, need the rule of law uh, for economic liberty. You need, you need, you know, reliable institutions of justice. Um, but what would be a good first step? Uh, you know, we've talked about other people's first steps or other people's uh, ideas. You know, um, people want industrial policy, distributist at least some of them, like uh, Chesterkin and Belloc, did want people growing their own food, <laughs> even if Rupka yes. maybe didn't. Um, and no, Rupka did. Oh yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> okay, good for sure. We, we all remember the yeah. famous conversation with yeah. Mises, right? Right, right. Um, so, what would be your first step? You know, maybe allow yourself to be imaginative or even romantic, um, but also a little practical. You know, what what do you think? What's that missing thing that is most achievable today? despite our current political climate, despite, you know, all of the well-known failures of our political process and frustrations and things that bother everyone every day, you know, where is a glimmer of hope uh, that maybe people could rally around and transcend some of that, that partisan divide? I think that we might actually have the prospect for some sort of a repeal movement, because even the national conservatives and the common good conservatives are apt to point to the Byzantine web of regulations that we currently have and the incomprehensible tax code that we currently have and say, this just isn't good for the common man. This isn't good for mom and pop joints. This is not good for small d democracy. There's no way that you can have citizen independence and citizen participation in politics when all these rules of the game disfavor the small at the expense of the big. And that's obviously something that classically liberal inclined uh, folks, especially those with an economics background, can get behind. And so I think that we might actually have some overlapping consensus on the need to, uh, even if we don't agree on what positively needs to be done, we can look at the existing web of rules that are coming out of the political process and see this is fundamentally unjust. It's crony capitalism. It's not free enterprise. It's stacking the deck, the deck against the little guy. And if we're going to have any lasting progress, whether your goal is just free markets or whether you want a Jeffersonian society of independent proprietors, getting rid of that bad stuff has got to come first. So in terms of prioritizing that, I think that I'm optimistic about that. In terms of your broader point, I'm actually very sympathetic to this idea that there's a deep cultural root to these political and economic freedoms that we take for granted. 
I don't often agree with the ex-Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Gordon Brown, but he once quipped that uh, when developing the rule of law, the first five centuries are usually the hardest. So this idea that, yeah, this is something that's grown, it's evolved. You can't just say, you know, we're not going to all just get in a room and write down a new constitution and have it instantly click. Even the U.S. Constitution had many features in it that were the product of actual lived experience by the English-speaking peoples for, for hundreds of years, at least since the Glorious Revolution after that, right? The colony experience was self-government. Magna Carta. Absolutely. You yeah. can't just think up new rules de novo and think that they're automatically going to be legitimate and binding on the community that you expect to be subject to those rules, which is one of the reasons why I'm so concerned with getting buy-in among American conservatives, why I'm so concerned with building consensus. Because if we're going to have these reforms, A, work, and B, last, we need to once again enculturate ourselves into a society of both virtue and liberty. I think that we have the tools there. I don't think they're so far gone that we need to restart this process from the ground up. But at the same time, I think that we have our work cut out for us and we need to be humble about what we can expect to achieve even over a very long time period. At this point, if we can just even slow down the rate of growth of federal spending, that would be a huge win. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Act in Line. Uh, once again, Alex is going to be joining us here in Grand Rapids on July 13 to discuss his book with Dr. Daryl Alquist. And we really look forward to that. I certainly do. Um, and I hope that listeners who are in the area will join us as well. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.